Welcome to the AI Events Podcast, your front row seat to exciting scholarly debates on pressing national issues. With new episodes every week, never miss out on the conversation and stay up to date on topics important to you. To hear more, check out our other channels related to education, domestic policy, and international issues. Hello, everybody, and welcome. Thank you guys for joining us. This is my first AEI panel via Zoom. I don't know how long my internet's going to be strong here, so I'm just going to cut to the chase. David, I'm going to start with you. When you look at what's happening with the police violence, the protests, the riots, the reactions, what does this say to you about community, about family, and about these lockdowns? Well, it- I, my immediate reaction was this was last week was the worst week of our um, collective lives. We had 100,000 dead. Um, we had a leader who was not working. And then we had these race riots. So we had um, and the, the crime that caused them. Uh, and so it seemed like just this incredible make or break moment. I've sort of been watching the uh, pandemic through the lens of social trust. Would we hang together and be trusting? And we entered it with extremely low social trust. And my perception is that we've done way better than I would have expected. Uh, We as communities have showed up for each other, norms have shifted. uh, And so I thought, yeah, we're getting through this. And then of course, because it's America, race happens uh, and racial injustice happens. And I think there are two issues here that are uh, to be weighed and they're different, but related obviously. The first is just the elemental issue of police brutality uh, and what black people have to go through every time they are stopped by a traffic cop. But the second is a larger issue, and a lot of the African Americans I've spoken over the last week has to do with simple exhaustion, uh, a sense that it's one more thing. Uh, you wrote this morning uh, that it, a lot of it is people have been shut in and shut down. But on top of that, the disproportionate impact on African Americans, and then the inequality of condition is the core thing to me. I mean, it's just a fact you, there's no America, no city in America where the African American neighborhoods in that city look like the white neighborhoods. There's just rampant inequality. Uh, And so when I think about this issue, I think about the police brutality issue, but I think more about the larger issue of racial disparities. And when I think about what, how we address it, it's not enough just to deal with the police unions and stuff like that. It has to be the elemental disparities of life. Bell? Well, I think David, as usual, has said all of this very well, and I think we're all still um, reeling from the fact that um, Mr. Floyd was killed by the police, and we all saw it visually, and we saw it in a way that I think even some of the past um, encounters of African Americans with the police uh, didn't seem as terrible as this time around, at least not to me. And um, it is a perfect storm, as David said. This is coming on top of the virus, coming on top of the economy, melting down and headed towards a depression. Uh, But I think, as David said, the uh, racial divide that underlies all of this has always been our greatest challenge in this country. It's the original uh, sin, the original injustice. I have to, um, because I'm the age that I am, um, tell you that I was teaching at Howard University back in 1968, right after Martin Luther King was assassinated. And we had riots then, and we had the National Guard on every corner, and Washington, D.C. was in flames. 
Um, and that was half a century ago. And although I think things have gotten somewhat better racially over the last half century, um, the gaps are still uh, pretty wide. Just finished reading Eduardo Porter's, um, one of David's colleagues at the New York Times, a book called American Poison, which is all about this um, racial divide in America. And I think that uh, if one is optimistic, one can point to the fact that there has been progress. We have a bigger black middle class. Uh, actually studies at Harvard as, as he and others have pointed out have shown a decline in white bias, both explicit bias and implicit bias. Uh, there's less residential racial segregation than there used to be. So, you know, I could go through a litany of things that have changed for the better, but we could also look at what's still quite um, bad. And you talk about it in your book, Tim, about the fact that counties in America where there was a lack of social trust to go back to that uh, theme of David's, which is also a theme of mine, and where people saw other people around them not getting ahead. So we're talking really about blacks, uh, excuse me, uh, whites without much education uh, feeling threatened. And um, that feeling threatened is partly, I think, what elected Trump, the political scientists have shown that, I think, uh, quite rigorously, uh, that that and the economy, but especially the cultural divide, helped elect him. And now he is playing on it. And that's going to exacerbate um, the protests and some of the violence we're seeing now. So I, I just can't help but think that that's what's really overwhelming us right now. But you know, we can go back to your bigger theme of uh, how is this affecting relationships? How is it affecting the family? I would agree with David that at the beginning, it kind of brought us all together and we kept using that phrase, we're all in this together. And it was a kind of bonding experience because whenever something bad happens, we reach out to each other for comfort. But I would say that as time has gone on and as it continues to go on, the stress is gonna build. Mm -hmm. And uh, the stresses of, um, having your children home all the time, the stresses of too much togetherness, the stresses of dealing with the health crisis and the economic crisis, I think are gonna build in a way that will be bad for families and bad for communities. We're already seeing you know, more suicide, more depression, more domestic violence, more child abuse, uh, you know, lots of problems. Sorry, I'm choppy connection. I do think the lockdowns have uh, been kindling to this fire. That's what I said in my column. I tried to be very careful to not say they caused this because again, um, a, a instance of police brutality against a backdrop of uh, police brutality and, and the, the racial inequalities in this country are sort of the ever present oxygen. The uh, instance was the ignition, but when people don't have jobs, when kids are not in school, when people don't have sources of recreation, you know they'll be less happy and more on edge. And that, um, that I do think it has been added fuel. Unfortunately, we're losing you, Tim. Yeah, please 
go ahead. Uh, David, over to you. Okay, uh, well, I, I, I didn't hear the question, but I have an answer anyway. <laughs> uh, you know, one of the things that occurs to me is, is that there are three groups in America, extremely low social trust, and in many cases for good reason. The first is African-Americans, much less likely to be trusting of institutions of our society, much less likely to be true, trusting of the general American. And that has certainly earned distrust because America has not been very kind uh, to African-Americans. The second group is the group Tim has covered a lot, and we all have, which is uneducated white, the disaffected, say, 26 percent. Uh, very low trust in government, extremely low trust in generalized in institutions like the media and everybody else. The third and the most interesting to me is young people. If you ask people Bell's age, my age, do you trust people? We generally say, yeah, in our generation or in, uh, above, uh, people are pretty trusting, even the boomers who grew up in Vietnam. Uh, but if you go down to people under 35 or so, 65% uh, say most people cannot be trusted. 73% say most people can be, um, uh, are selfish and out for themselves. And so what's interesting to me about this crisis is this is their formative moment. Your view of, the, of reality, your view of the world is formed before around age 30. And if you happen to grow up in World War II era, you were, had a very positive view of the world and you carried high levels of trust, high levels of solidarity with you through the rest of your lives and you were able to build communities. Uh, if you grow up with low trust by 30 as millennials and Gen Z seem to be doing, then they're gonna carry that through life. And, and this, this episode is the big educational moment for them. And so far you would have to say, especially if you look at who's out on the streets, it, it's not been a good episode. I think I, I tend overall a little more optimistic than Bell about how families are doing. I, I speak to, and how communities are doing. You know, I speak to so many families uh, and a lot of it depends on the age of the kids. People with really young kids are um, okay. People with adult kids are great. And people with in between are completely stressed by the completely unrealistic expectations the schools have put on them. And it's also highly gendered. Uh, I saw some research from Harvard and they asked uh, men do you feel closer to your children or more tension with your children? And 60% of men say, I feel closer to my children now. Women have a much different experience because they've got more pressure uh, because they've got the dual roles that they still fall disproportionately on them. But I overall think we are now locked in families. Millennials are locked in multi-generational families, which is, I think is a good thing. And most of all, we're locked in locality. Uh, there's a, a book, The Road to Somewhere, and it's a distinction between people who are cosmopolitan and people who are rooted in community. Now pretty much the whole world is rooted in community. They're rooted in neighborhood. And among the people I've spoken to, there's just a greater sense of knowing your neighbor, a greater sense of paying attention to your block. Uh, and so I think on the whole, that's gonna be a good thing. And a big shift, especially among the young, a sense that home was just an apartment where you parked your stuff. And now a sense, no, home is actually an emotional uh, and spiritual concept. And the concept of home, I think, has been at home to everybody. And I, I do think that's going to yield positive psychological and cultural outcomes for years to come. You know, people don't form community for the sake of community. It's just not, they don't do it just because the idea of community is a good idea. They do it because they have common needs. Uh, and now we have a lot of common needs. And certainly if there's anything this has done is it's robbed us as a, of a sense of self-sufficiency. Uh, and so whether it's delivering food, 
uh, or, you know, I, I have this thing weave where I spend my time with community weavers who are community builders around the country. And I've been on the phone with them for the past three months. And the one thing they've all done, they've all expanded their social role. So if you're a school principal, suddenly you're now in charge of making sure one of your kids who lost, whose parents lost their job, that he has an apartment and mattresses. Uh, and if a woman, Abel and I know named Sarah Heminger, who runs Thread in Baltimore, which is a sort of a youth program, she's also worked together with other organization heads to create a food distribution network that feeds 1,500 families. Uh, a kid I know in California who runs a, a tutoring thing for or a thing that helps parents and schools relate, he started an online learning for 9,000 kids. So everybody's role has suddenly expanded as they take on all these jobs. And all the thing, a lot of things that used to be left to government or used to be left to other families are now civic institutions that are rising to try to handle them. Uh, and so I think the increase of need increases interdependence, increases community. And as long as we believe that people can figure stuff out together, it has to create more collective impact. Now, community is not always a great thing. People get on each other's nerves. And I imagine that's going to be the case. But... Uh, as long as there's a, a common sense of dependency and interdependency, that has to be a cure for the problem we've all written about all these years, which is autonomy, excess of autonomy and isolation. I do think it's true. It, it was always a cruel irony that we're all in this together when I haven't been able to be with, you know, my neighbors physically and be at church. I have noticed that I've had more with my over the fence neighbors I've had more over-the-fence conversations during the last two and a half months than in the previous four years when I lived next door to them. Um, and so that has happened. And then the, uh, again, so my Catholic parish is a heart of, of sort of my community, St. Andrews out in the, the DC suburbs. Um, and it's just interesting. Every once in a while, I would go to like a, a Tuesday mass. Catholics have mass every day. You're only obligated to go on Sunday. There's, a handful of people who go every single day at the given average daily mass there's probably about 30 people when we started streaming and then playing on youtube our daily masses we were getting 1100 people so suddenly the desire for church whether it's all from our area or from around because we have a dynamic priest the desire for it grew the the knowledge that we need each other grows but what makes me still worry is just, again, we do need each other and we're less likely to bump into our neighbors because we're not walking around uh, Main Street. Maybe we're walking through the gardens more and that's good, um, but we're less likely to bump into our neighbors because we're not going to Sunday Mass, because we're not going to pick up at school and drop off at school, um, because we're not going to work. Where so much of us find modeling, mentoring, role modeling, that kind of thing. Um, and just that the lack of that daily serendipitous person-to-person -person encounter, I would assume, given, you know, what I've found and come to understand about community, I would assume that that has costs. So we have the nice stories, but could we see, to, if, if we wanted to test that hypothesis, what would you look for? What would you ask people on the street? What would you look for in sociological data months from now? You know, I, I'm going to argue that this is a short-term effect, that the positive stuff that you've both alluded to, the short-term effect, is there, and we can all give examples of it. But I would point uh, to the trends in social trust and trusted institutions. 
and we're going to look at uh, long-term data on trust in other individuals or long-term trends in trusted institutions, especially the government, but many other institutions as well, the media, uh, churches, etc. Uh, that trust has been declining for some decades now with a couple of uh, blips. You know, around 9-11, for example, there was a definite 9-11 effect. Can I stick to my optimistic line? So, <laughs> um, and so I, we don't have a lot of data about so far what's happened because it's just been two and a half months. But the data we have, I think, is, is pretty positive that Edelman runs this big trust survey. They've done it every year all around the world. And so far, they've found an 11% increase in trust in government, which, given how our government reacts, uh, that wouldn't necessarily been my instinct. But, but people sort of want government to do stuff. Uh, you look at how people have reacted, say, to the, the federal bailouts, 89% of Republicans and 89% of Democrats say they support it. We've had, to me, incredible cohesion on whether to do lockdowns. You know, there, there's obviously a polarized debate at the top, but at the core of America, 77% of Americans through April and May said, no, we have to stick with the lockdowns. And then if you look at social distress... I've been, I've talked to Bella about this before. I've been following this USC Understanding America survey, which is a daily running survey. And in March, levels of anxiety and self-reported depression went up and they've been going down ever since. If, if you ask people, do you feel you've been discriminated against? It went up in March and it's been going down ever since. And then um, the group more in common, a guy named Tim Dixon is doing uh, daily focus groups. And he tells me most people are tuning out the politics and looking around to their neighbors for how to act. And he says there's way more positivity. The number one subjects is like the local restaurant that is get turned into a soup kitchen, uh, the local church that's doing this and that. Uh, if you ask people, do you think we're more united or divided? It's 42% say we're more united and only 23% say we're more divided. So to me, we don't have a lot of data. Hopefully we'll get more as the weeks go by. But so far the data is pretty good. And it could all turn down, and it's curious to me what um, will happen as this becomes more of an economic story and less of a health story, and what the economic recession will do to us. So that could certainly erode trust. It certainly you would think it would lead to a rise in suicide, but it didn't in the Great Depression. Uh, and it all depends on, on, on what happens. And then the final point I just want to make, Tim, about church, why I've noticed this, churches and synagogues, people are so much happier to go online and I, I think a lot of people just feel socially awkward going to church because there's that moment when you're passing the peace or you're, uh, you have to say uh -huh. hello to your neighbor and like, ah, that's so awkward. I don't want to go. <laughs> so th there has to be services for, um, for loners <laughs> so <laughs> they'll induce them to go. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm not a, uh, a, a handshaker, hugger, anything during mass. I'm, I'm uh, spiritually a, a bit of a loner, but definitely socially a an extrovert. Um, but on um, one of the things I want to talk about, David, your article that struck a nerve with me, uh, the nuclear family was a mistake, a great headline, made sure I absolutely had to read it. I kind of heard you talking about it before, so I knew where you were going. I'm as pro-family as, you know, guys get, but um, working on, on my book, et cetera, seeing it takes a village is, could have been something a conservative would have said. Um, and then the lockdown happens. And the reason I'm at work at the examiner right now with its subpar internet connection, um, uh, is cause it's too hard for me to get work done at home. We have six kids, my, our dogs, 
me, my wife, like the, the kids trying to study me. I've, I've had to say to them, no, Meg, I know it looks like I'm here, but I'm not. And it's really unnerving for them to have dad home and ignoring them. It's really unnerving for me to be home and not be able to do the, the dad stuff I like to do, the husband stuff, et cetera. Um, I know people who decided kind of early on who were pretty strict about lockdowns and about social distancing. They said, we're going to co-quarantine together, two families next door. None of us are going into the office. None of us are riding public transit. None of us have essential jobs. Just we're one family unit. Those people are the, the sort of happiest people I know in my circle of kind of middle-aged dads of teenagers to young kids, which is just proving to me again that the, the nuclear family wasn't built for this. Anyway, I, do you have any experiences, thoughts, whatever during on this? Yeah, the first thought I had, I was speaking a couple of weeks ago to a farmer somewhere out in maybe Nebraska, and he said, my life hasn't changed much. It's like, I, I work my farm and I have my family, we all work it together. And we, we're used to staying close to home. And the farm, especially in the 19th and 18th century, was the ultimate extended family operation. Yep. Uh, and I, at the end of that piece in the Atlantic, I talked about forged families or, or chosen families, the families where you're not necessarily biologically related. And I argue that, that more people are living in those arrangements uh, and that it's a good thing. And that and it gives you, it light, lightens the load on everybody to share the labor. And one of the advantages that affluent people have is they can basically buy an extended family <laughs> in the form of nannies and guys cutting the grass and stuff like that. Uh, and so that's a privilege that uh, makes it possible to have a nuclear family. But if you don't have that money to buy an extended family, then it's fragile. And I, uh, my sense is exactly what your sense. I, there was a good piece in the Atlantic, I wish I could remember the author in the headline, by a woman in Shanghai who decided not to have kids because she thought it would hurt her career. And uh, during the pandemic, her sister and her brother-in-law have a kid and they were just beaten down by all the work pressures and all the, the parenting pressures. So they moved in with their family and this young woman and her partner and formed a big family unit of seven. And she wrote so beautifully about the kids' teeth coming in, the nap time, how long the nap times were. And she said, it's totally changed, changed my mentality about um, about life. Uh, mm -hmm. it's, I wish I could remember the key words so you could Google it for the Atlantic. But um, I do think that's a that's sort of a spiritual awakening uh, that can happen to people. And, but it's only possible if the the load of parenting and work is not crushing. Yeah. So you have to find arrangements so the load is not crushing. And we're all now used to doing Zooms where the kids will be crawling on the laps of people. Uh, and I think it's great, but it, that's easy for me to say because my kid is 21. He's not going to be crawling on my lap. So, <laughs> um, What you said earlier, David, about the you know men feeling closer. It's like I, I have friends who are that guy. <laughs> like, this is great. I work and then there's no commute. And then I'm home and then I'm playing stick ball with my kids. And then their wives are standing behind them while they're telling me this story, rolling their eyes. I've literally had that happen uh, twice. Okay. Well, I don't know how much you heard before. I was telling about, talking about Jennifer Silva's, uh, the professor at Indiana's interviews with middle-class Americans through this period and how she's finding a very mixed picture out there, and especially some women who are feeling way overburdened uh, because they are, you know, the primarily responsible for the kids for the homework, for the schooling, for the three meals a day, et cetera. 
and um, other people are feeling like this is a chance uh, for them to spend more time with their children or their spouse because they've been working 24-7 and now they don't have to work 24-7. So I think it's a very diverse picture out there and it's really hard to generalize. And, you know, my only disagreement with you, David, is that your data are short term. And I'm expecting that it's going to be a lot like 9-11, that we, so we see this pop-up of good news uh, that then erodes again over time. So I think we have to talk more about um, how do we restore uh, social trust more generally. And I think because we've changed so rapidly as a society, <clears throat> especially in uh, demographic terms, um, that there is a sense of uh, people not being able to adjust, people, especially this less educated white group feeling under threat. And um, that is going to be a continuing uh, problem. But the other thing I would say is that I think a lot of progressives on the other hand are now saying, we've had a crisis, a crisis is an opportunity, we can build it back better to use Andrew Cuomo's phrase. And they're hope, very hopeful right now. And uh, it remains to be seen whether the kind of progressive ideas that they're uh, pushing to build, us, build it back better will ever come to fruition or not. And that depends on our politics. Well, I wanna, um, talking about, uh, take at least a few more minutes on the, the police uh, and racial issues that are behind what we're seeing now. Um, the first reactions of sort of Washington policy people when we see this is to think, how can we fix it? And a lot of the lists amount to regulating cops. And a lot of these regulations or taking away qualified immunity or other things are probably almost certainly necessary that some of them would improve things. Um, but I'm the kind of conservative who when I see a problem, things maybe a government regulation isn't the first solution. And maybe there's an ecological problem. And I think, David, you might have hinted at this earlier. Again, not to say that we don't need different rules on police and that different systems in different police departments haven't had an effect. But the, the idea of um, kneeling on a man's neck like that involves a treatment of somebody as um inhuman and so we could just say oh it's it's white supremacy it's a white guy who doesn't see a black guy as a human um and that's part of it but i also think that i just think of the cops you know my my friends who are cops who who are coaching little league in the town so that they know the people better etc um that there's got to be something to the old thing that we and the you know bill clinton etc were saying for years that police being part of a community um, is going to make things better. And am I wrong? Am I being too sentimental and, and mushy when I say the first step has got to be integrating, making people see their police as neighbors and neighbors see the people in their town I, and police see the people in their town as neighbors as well? Yeah, well, I do think community policing has, has proven beneficial overall. I think the militarization of the police uh, is, uh, has set people back. Um, you know, I, I was a police reporter um, for a while and uh, I left the University of Chicago and went to the Chicago police force. 
And I remember thinking first that the detectives I met in the Chicago police force were just as smart as my professors at the University of Chicago. They were some very smart people. The second thing I thought, and this was especially about the, the, the men, most them, in those days, mostly men in blue, the in uniform, was that 80% of them were just wonderful people. But there was a high, there was maybe 10 or 20% who were in it for the power and the petty uh-huh. power, and they were bullies. And this gave them a chance to be bullies. And that applies to white and black people too, by the way. There was a piece of research that I'd love to know if it's still germane, but Roland Fryer at Harvard did this in 2016. It was on the front page of the New York Times that African-Americans in an encounter with the police are more likely to be beaten and bullied, but they're not more likely to be killed. And that the uh, killing unarmed people, it's pretty much equal, uh, white and black. And so there's a racial element, obviously, but there's also just a bully element. And I do think um, that integrating cops into the police into the community has got to be a good thing i think even the, what we saw over the weekend with some cops kneeling down with the protesters was a good thing and, and taking off that that oppositional mentality uh that there's us in uniform and there's all those crazy civilians out there and cops armor up emotionally they just have to because the yeah. way they deal with and, and i remember when i was a when i was sitting there in the, the rooms in the police rooms they would play these games name that felon where they'd hold up a monk shot and you had to try to remember because they have to build a cynical guard just to stay with what they're doing. Uh, and then the, the communities have historical legacies. One of the things I've really been thinking about, and I'm going to ask Bella a question, uh, is that just two weeks before we all shut down, I spent a week in Compton and Watts. And Watts is obviously a neighborhood that has been uh, permanently devastated by riots. And I visited the local community people there and their distrust of outsiders was so deep. I came away thinking the only way to build community in these areas is to give money and power to the people already in the neighborhood. They've had so many waves of people from outside coming in to help them that they've built up distrust because those people get a foundation grant. They come in for three years, the money runs out and they leave and they leave the people in the neighborhood behind. And so the only the people in those neighborhoods, each particular neighborhood has enough local knowledge to actually run a local community uh, program or even a local policing program in Compton. There's a guy who's the pap- ba- pastor of the Baptist church and the deputy sheriff. It's one guy. And so he's, he's in the community and people talked about him. I think his name is Rafe Johnson. Uh, and uh, the one thing I have paused about that is handing so much power back to local communities is I think the great society did that. <laughs> and this is my question for Bell. Am I right? And I think the consensus is it didn't really work. Well, I think it was Senator Moynihan that uh, coined the phrase maximum feasible misunderstanding. Um, that's not quite right, but it, it, but you're right. The whole theory back uh, during the great society um, was that we would turn power back to communities and we would have community-based um, uplift and it didn't work very well. Uh, that said, I think there's a balance here between um, it sort of homegrown leadership as opposed to leadership that's imposed uh, externally uh, or uh, money that comes in externally. So I want to, but I want to go back to the, your comments about, both of your comments about the police. I mean, I think that there is definitely a selection into the police force of people who have a, a thing about power and violence. 
there's bound to be. And it doesn't mean that everybody is like that, but it does mean that there might be a disproportionate number. And I think what was most shocking about the latest incident is that um, the other three officers stood there and did nothing. I think that shocked me almost more than the uh, deed itself. But I think, Tim, community policing definitely works. And training also uh, should work. I don't know if it does for sure or not. I heard Mayor Bottoms, the mayor of Atlanta, speaking about this recently. She's very articulate about all of this. And um, uh, we have probably not had enough time uh, to see the effects of all of that. Uh, so I just hope this doesn't set us back on community policing, on training, on some of the other things that we're beginning to do uh, that we didn't used to do. To bring it all uh, a little bit all together, it's it, one of the main problems, depressing things I found in the last few years of looking at communities in America is two disadvantages that you find for minorities. One is we just don't have a lot of really diverse, cohesive communities. Um, Robert Putnam's argument was that diversity dissolves community cohesion. There were, even the people who responded to him said, no, it's not diversity. It's just, it's a temporary thing. It's the change um, that does it. So whether it's gentrification or immigration or whatever it is, when people's old communities get mixed up, when they're less homogenous, they're less likely um, to have that tight bond. And I have a lot of explanations I could give on that, et cetera. But um, you guys have thought about that very well too. The other is um, that the, there is, I think, some truth to the story that you can look at immigrant communities um, and you can look at middle-class black communities and see a cohesion that um, is extraordinarily high. But I also think that in general in this country, that poorer places with less education don't actually have sort of that nice, we all hang together. It's where there's going to be more crime in poor neighborhoods, which is not the sign of high cohesion. Um, so given those two sort of depressing facts about uh, race and community, um, is there anything I'm missing? Is there anything I should be happy about? Or is there anything worse that I've left out? Yeah. Go ahead, David. Well, uh, sorry, uh, there, there's a new paper we've just put out by uh, my colleague, Mark Fabian, and he has done a very nice study with data and so forth that to some extent um, looks at the uh, Bob Putnam thesis about how uh, diversity, uh, growing diversity leads to uh, a backlash and a sense of uh, threat. Um, a hunkering down amongst uh, like-minded communities. But he also shows, and this is um, fits with your book, Tim, uh, that where communities have uh, strong relationships and strong civic infrastructure, uh, they are much less uh, likely to um, vote for a populist. That was his it basically was mm -hmm. interested in the people who voted for Trump. And like you, he shows that the people who voted for Trump 
uh, tended to live in counties and communities where there wasn't much um, social infrastructure and uh, much really poor relationships and low social trust. So when he controlled though, for the fact that um, some people lived in communities where there were strong relationships and some people didn't, then the uh, whole issue of racial resentment that some political scientists think drove the Trump vote went away or mostly went away. So it's a complicated study. Sorry if I'm not explaining it very well, but it really gets at the complexities here of how civic capital can uh, protect against um, uh, divisions, other kinds of divisions. I guess I would say when you get into this world of social solidarity and social trust, you're surrounded by feedback loops, uh, positive yeah. feedback loops in some cases and negative feedback loops in others. And so if, if, a, if a country's doing well or a neighborhood's doing well, then they say, oh, the world's a good place and I trust it. And so one of the highest trust rates, if you can believe the numbers in the world is China. Uh, and China has, has had a ton of economic growth over the last four years and people think, oh, the government's doing a pretty good job. And then on the other side, uh, you get areas, well, I'll go back to Putnam's original work or Edward Banfield's work in Italy where you have a, a low cohesion and low trust areas in Southern Italy and more trust in the North. And the bottom in Southern Italy, you don't get, I know me, you don't get individualism. You get what I think Banfield called amoral familism, that the only people you can trust is people in your family. And so when you start a business, you hire all your cousins because you can trust them. But when you run out of cousins, your business can't grow. And so you, it ends up hurting economic growth in Southern Italy. And in Northern Italy, you, you trust is more widespread, solidarity is more widespread. And so it grows. So once you start, uh, then you, you just get all these positive feedback loops. Uh, and the second thing I'd say, my reading of the diversity literature, and Putnam is, I speak to him a fair bit, and he, he, he's not hard on the diversity leads to distrust. He's, he talks more in the, it's a temporary thing. My, I've learned a ton of this, and I guess I defer to a guy named Kevin Vallier, who, who teaches at Bowling Green University. His core point is that it's not diversity that leads to distrust, it's segregation that leads to distrust. Mm -hmm. And if people are in separate, can see each other, but they don't know each other, well, then of course, there's going to be high levels of distrust. And so to me, the problem is that we're still way too segregated. And, and uh, as somebody said, one of you guys said that residential segregation is down, but schooling segregation is up. Uh, and so we're just still way too segregated. And I think that was a fault of, well, whites comfortable with living in white areas and the Republican party self-segregating into a white party. But it's also, I blame a little multiculturalism that uh, put less emphasis. Uh, Arthur Schlesinger's last book was called The Disuniting of America. It put less en emphasis on integration and more on, on cultural purity and homogeneity uh, and I think that also had a very negative effect on the cause of integration. And so I'd say on diversity that the, um, the solution is to integrate people uh, and then you'll build trust once they actually get to know each other, whether it's in churches or neighborhoods or residentially. I, I, okay. really, I, I really want to just quickly weigh in and say, I totally agree with that. And you know, there's a whole, whole theory about this and lots of evidence for it. It's called contact theory and it's uh, empirically very strong. And it's why I've been in favor of national service uh, for all young people. And thank you, David, for writing the column about that recently. 
Uh, and it's why I think integration, residential, in schools, uh, in national service, and elsewhere has to be a major goal here. Thanks for listening to the AEI Events Podcast. You can find new episodes each week on your favorite podcast apps. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. We'll see you next week.